This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. everybody. Yes, thank you. Great to be here and great to talk with you, Jeff. We had a few little pre-conversations and I just feel like there's so much to talk about. I think it's going to be a good one. Yeah, so so tell, you, we, you told me a little bit about how you got interested in truth and deception. So can you tell that story in a little bit more detail? Yeah, sure. Well, work? so it's, you may be able to hear some of my accent. I'm Canadian. Um, there'll be a few outs and abouts and A's in there. And uh, I grew up uh, really far north in Canada, but um, when I went to university, I discovered that there was this job where you could be a customs officer. And I was a psychology student and thought, man, there's probably nothing better than, like, you know, questioning people and then searching their stuff. It was like a voyeur's <laughs> dream. So my best friend Mike and I um, were customs officers in Victoria, and I did it for two years. And it was sort of my first experience of uh, people you know, lying to me and, uh, and having consequences. So uh, lots of experience of, uh, of certainly catching people in lies, but also began to suspect that there were, you know, many things that I wasn't picking up on. And the things that I did learn really made me rethink, you know, how lying works and what is deception and trust. So, yeah, that was a really a big eye-opener for me. How about you? Well, I can't say like I've been interested in trust from the time I was a teenager or anything like that. Um, but what I have been interested in is the importance of uh, honest communication and communication around topics that are so pertinent to our lives. So, you know, I'm a science reporter, and part of how I got interested in science and, um, and I guess that honesty around communication was when I was in high school – that was when they had this Silomar conference around recombinant DNA. And I'm sure you know the story where they, were, they were, had moved ahead with this technology where they were merging DNA from two different organisms and, um, and basically decided we need to stop in order to understand the implications of this because it could be very dangerous. And so scientists collectively agreed we're going to take a moment here, came together at Silomar to discuss it, um, developed some guidelines, and then and they were very public about that and brought the public into the discussion. So to me, that was this moment of recognizing, wow, um, first, the science were very honorable and ethical about their approach, but we would not have known anything about it without them being willing to reveal that. Right. And so the, this cycle of um, willingness to, be, to act with integrity and to let the, the public know that you're acting that way, and also uh, the public's right to know and interest in actually um, helping to define the future to really came clear to me. It's a great story. I, I like hearing good things about scientists. <laughs> oh, I love but scientists. But, you know, part of it I think we'll come to in our conversation is that um, to some degree people trust scientists less these days and trust 
you know, whether you want to call them elites or intellectuals or whatever, but I think that's going to be a big topic for us. Yeah, and I think that's true, and it's and as we think about institutions, too, that are trusted or not trusted. But it would be great if you could just kind of get us started by grounding us a little bit in this I, the science of deception and trust. Yeah, great. Well, good to start with the main topics. So um, let's define what we mean by deception. Um, some of my philosophy friends can write like two pages for this definition, uh, but we can have a simple one, and that is uh, an intentional attempt to mislead someone. So to mislead someone means you've created a false belief. You've got them to believe something that you know not to be true. And the intentional part's important because otherwise it would be a mistake or sarcasm or a joke or something like that. So that's deception, and it really it comes down to that. Like, are you creating a false belief in someone else? Um, trust, which has a really interesting relationship to deception, um, to me is um, best defined you know, in the broadest terms by um, a German sociologist, Nicholas Lerman, who described it as confidence in one's expectations. So those expectations could be with another person, right? So it could be you know, in a friendship, it could be in a marriage, it could be with an organization or a brand. And that's why I like that that one it's it's it places the emphasis on expectations rather than say risk which a lot of other more economic models have yeah so usually it's about expectations and and how confident you are in them and and most other people define it as having some aspect of risk taking a little bit of a leap of faith but a lot of our our day-to-day interactions just depend on trust and there's zero thinking about it so i think that idea of you know expectations fits really nicely yeah, it's interesting you say that because when when I started the trust project and I had named this thing the trust project and I thought, well, I've really better f- try to figure out what this what this is that this thing that we're trying to um, pull and create in the uh, in the public regarding journalism, and so I went and looked at the literature and what was interesting to me is I there wasn't a whole lot about trust in the digital space. Right. So I looked at trust online and trust in newspapers and then tried to bring it together and it came up with that idea that it's about a reliability it's about um, uh, a sense that this whatever you're reading or the institution you're relying on is um, has ethics behind them that you there's a certain sense of confidence that they will act according to your expectations yeah so, so it, it fits totally nicely. fit yeah yeah well yeah. Ed, tell us a little bit more about the trust project because I think that's also really important enterprise. So describe it for us so we can talk about it. Yeah, great. Um, So the Trust Project, the whole idea of the Trust Project is to make it easier for the public to make informed decisions about what to trust and what to not not to trust online. And a lot, I mean, a lot of your work is around misperception and and, um, deception, lack of trust. And so what we're kind of looking at the other side, like how can we build integrity? How can we build people's awareness of information that has integrity behind it. So what the this network of news partners that we have, what they're doing is implementing information about who is and what is behind that site, what policies, what practices, what people um, are behind this production of piece of news that you see. And um, we have, there's 120 sites now showing these trust indicators on their pages, and there's another 80 working on it. Um, 
And then there's a tie to that is technical data that machines can read. So we have external partners like uh, Google and Facebook and Twitter and Bing who are all working with us in ways to essentially be able to use these trust indicators to surface higher, higher quality news. And the hope is that it will push out this um, all that misinformation. So like the idea might be that Google, when you search something, it will uh, highlight in it and raise to the top um, news items that come from a trusted source from the trust project. Yeah, in essence, I mean, we can't like a place like Google. Let's say their algorithm ex- is extremely complex, and so I could never say, "Well, if you just do this trust project, then of course you'll be at the top," and then uh, you know all one twenty can't be at the top at the same time. So the idea is that um, what what it does help them do is, and Google is doing this right now, is assess reliability. Um, and also simple things like display. If, if When they're showing a variety of stories on a topic, they can show you um, a news piece, a piece of analysis, a piece of opinion, and it's much easier for them to do that correctly when the news organizations are, are giving them the proper signals. Gotcha. So it's so kind of cleaning up a little bit the right. signals that they're getting. Making better like data for them to pick up on on what's authoritative or trustworthy. Right. Yeah, yeah, and then then it's really important that there's these two sides that you've got the back end with the machine readable part, and then the users can see it as well. Very nice. How's it going so far? Do you think? Well, I feel really good about it. I mean, I just had this idea, and um, the way it came about is we had I kept I brought all these editors together because I I've always been uh, involved in trying to hold journalists to their highest values, and usually it was around diversity, but. Um, also thinking a bit about ethics. And I brought all these journalists together, these senior editors together um, at Santa Clara, and asked them to revisit this problem of ethics in the digital world. And what I found was they were saying the exact same things that they were saying 20 years before when I had convened a similar group. And it was all about how the digital environment was degrading news quality and degrading ethics and, you know, a woman, the woman who created the idea, that came up with the idea of putting, uh, posting uh, like mug shots in Florida, just so you could see you them, the and then it would, like were. click, people would click through, and all of a sudden every newspaper was doing that. She got up and said, "You know, I just really regret ever having thought of that." So I thought, well, if we, these algorithms are promoting the worst in us, the worst in news, can't why do we have to let that happen? Why can't we just flip the picture and let? algorithms support quality. And so that's how the Trust Project was born, just this idea. And now we've got you know, all these sites throughout um, Europe, U.S., Canada. You know, plenty of news in Canada that are interested in this. The and are Brazil. Good. They're yeah, really they're good very good. News, yeah. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's where we are right well, that's now. That's great. And, and so I would guess uh, for you, the Trust Project sort of came out of 2016 and sort of that election cycle and concerns with fake news, or were you working on no, it before that? No, we preceded that. that. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah, and that's what really gave us the push, of course, because all of a sudden people realized what is happening to the information we're getting. And, um, and of course, people became, I mean, I think the editors at the time were becoming more and more aware that people were seeing news. Um, out of context, so you know, you wouldn't necessarily go to the New York Times to read a New York Times story, or you know, San Jose Mercury News to get their story, but you would go to Facebook or or do a search on Google and get it. And so you're not; it's very hard to tell the difference between a real news story and anything else. Yeah, I mean, this is it's amazing with the phone. Uh, this is a problem for almost all of our life. Everything that we do can happen on the phone now 
you know, right? From work to uh, relationships to, you know, love, um, selling and buying. Everything happens on the phone, entertainment, distraction. And so then you throw news in there. And it's right beside entertainment. It's beside distraction. It's beside, you know, texting. And I think for people, it's been a really difficult adjustment to understanding, like, what is this I'm dealing with now? Five seconds ago, it was, you know, some friends on Facebook. And 12 seconds before that, I was working on an email. And, you know, like, it's just everything has been combined onto that. So I can see why people would be confused about, like, how do I make sense of this? Well, and have you studied that to look at how people... Like, what cues do they use in order to understand what am I looking at here? Yeah, so for that, um, we have some colleagues at Stanford that are working on something called the Screenomics Project. So this is Byron Reeves and a bunch of colleagues. And um, it's been fascinating because they just they take a screenshot of the phone every five seconds. And we kind of get to see, like, what the, the flow is. And for a long time in media psychology, we sort of like, well, people do, you know, they text and they communicate and then they'll like maybe watch some shows or whatever. And then they'll go on and see new, like we thought of this as like big buckets, but it's much more like a river. And in the same way, a river is continuous. People are moving through these different activities seamlessly. So Stanford students who are pretty decent, you know, they'll spend maybe a minute writing a paper and then they'll go online and check something on social media and then they'll go back to their paper for a minute. Then they'll do some shopping. They'll go back, write for a minute. And I was like, writing for a minute? Like that's, <laughs> how do you Literally, do that? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying. It actually works pretty good. And uh, so, right. So the, the, our understanding of what people's experience with media is now is 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 i think really outdated we have this very like tv analogy that we've brought over and there it was like well this is a uh, you know after school and then there was some news and then there was sitcom and then there was more news and uh that operated on the half hour hour cycle and you could pretty clearly distinguish between them and now we're operating on the seconds cycle and people like it it's 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 good some people are concerned about you know, is this affecting our, our, our memories and our attention? And, and I, I assume it is. But, um, but we're changing the way we, we consume media. And I think, yeah, news became just part, a piece of it mixed all in. And I, th- I think, I mean, in our conversations, I think both of us are relatively optimistic. Um, I think we went through a period where we were making lots of mistakes. And uh, I was just talking to... Um, colleague at Berkeley that studies kids and uh, toddlers take 14,000 steps in a day when they're just learning how to walk and they fall a hundred times on average, like a hundred, like wipe out <laughs> right in your face, right on their butt. And his point was that, you know, when we encounter new things, this, toddlers are not trying to get somewhere. They're just like, oh, wow, this is amazing. They fail a lot. And we in the Valley here talk about failing. But then when it comes to this kind of thing, we, we're really hard on ourselves. So I think we made um, a lot of mistakes and, uh, and when we're learning and we're trying. But I think the media environment is, is really radically different. And it's going to take a little while for us to get to a place where we know what we're doing. So that's, I mean, I realize that we are both optimistics, but at the same time, it's a little bit scary. So if it's going to take us a while, and yet we're in this really dangerous situation right now where um, the harms are acute because, one, people are acting on misinformation. Two, 
this whole idea of post-truth. I mean, that really worries me. The idea that we can think that, what, what are we saying? Does it mean truth doesn't matter, that we don't care? Um, the idea that somehow you can't, I hear people saying, oh, well, um, news, you can't trust any news. And so, and when we, if we actually have that belief, then there's no reason to have news at all. And once you don't have news, then you don't have or journalism more yeah. properly. You don't have a clear sense of the world that we share or the facts that we share and how to make decisions about not just our own lives, but our shared lives, our communities, our governments. Right, right. Yeah, so that, for me, post-truth has like three kind of uses or connotations and, and beliefs, this idea that like, what can we believe is, is a really important one and, and, and maybe the most worrisome. Um, I've talked to people in the military uh, over the last two years who <laughs> point out that uh, beliefs matter, right? When you're making decisions, whether you're a military or a corporation or an organization or a university or a family, the accuracy of your information will have, out, you know, impacts on, on outcomes for you. And so that always, like, is heartening. But you're right, that skepticism in media and whether you can believe something or whether it's all just, um, you know, um, people with certain kinds of interests, like there's the left media and the right media and things like that, that's very worrisome. There's two other meanings that I think are less concerning for me. So the first time I encountered post-truth was like 2002, and this guy uh, wrote about, oh, you know, uh, now that we're communicating by email and text and we're not face-to-face anymore, people will lie all the time. And this idea that just because I can't see you, you're going to lie more often is very powerful and intuitive, but I think totally wrong. So for me, when people say post-truth and what they mean is like everybody's lying, I don't buy that. Um, And we can talk more about that, but you know, that's a a concern people have. And then there's this, this other one about, um, you know, what do we, what do we pay attention to? And for me, this is the core of post-truth. It means like, hey, we need to start thinking about what is true and who to trust in new ways. So it's almost like an attention thing. So your point was about beliefs, and I think that's really worrisome. And if people start not believing in institutions of democracy like media and government, uh, corporations, you know, capitalist systems, for instance, yeah, that's, that's a big problem for us. Um, I think increased lying, I just don't think that's true. And, you know, we can talk more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But this idea that we we actually need to pay attention to how we believe in things and and what we think might be true or not, I think that's sort of us as a society saying, well, panic time, let's like reassess what we think is true. And that's a good thing. I I think that's really important. Yeah. You know, actually, as you're saying that, you're absolutely right. Because... Um, some of the work that I do, too, is in diversity and um, teaching journalists how to be more accurate, really, in their reporting. And, and part of doing that is questioning your assumptions. Like you walk in to any story with, with your identity and your history with you. Um, and it's not just about covering identity. It's about covering the world properly. So it is a good idea to question our assumptions. I mean, in a way, that's what journalism is all about. Um, I guess the question, there's this distinction between what are our assumptions and how do, we, um, how do we account for that and what, and 
what is the basic fact or the basic reality of the situation? And that's something that I think journalists struggle with. Yeah. And we, like we, the Society for Professional, for Professional Journalists Ethics Code, with like the very first section starts out that what we do is seek truth and report it. And there was this whole debate about whether that T should be capitalized or not. Mm-hmm. And the decision in the end was, no, we're not going to capitalize that T because we are all, one, we're seeking it. And two, there are this, there's this variety of perspectives. If a car accident happens on a, at an intersection, we all see it slightly differently. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we know that the accident happened. Like you can look at the, the uh, actual evidence and make right. some, not assumptions, but yeah. learn something from that. So it's this kind of it's the it's the process of um, journalism really gets down to talking to a variety of stakeholders and looking at the evidence to eventually find that truth and and that might be something maybe we need to help people understand more. Right, and I think that term "evidence" is one of the the key uh, ideas in in deception research. And there's been work on deception for about fifty, sixty years. Um, the emphasis for a long time has been cues. Like, how can I tell if somebody's lying to me? Like, I want to know Pinocchio's nose. And unfortunately, there is no Pinocchio's nose. And there aren't a lot of cues for lying. When we ask people, you know, can you think back to the last time you caught someone lying to you? And most people can do it. It takes a few minutes. So if the audience wants to pause and think about the last time you were lied to, go for it. Um, when you look at those accounts, very rarely is it like a cue, like, oh, the person's eyes went up and to the left, which is total BS. Um, almost all the time, it's about evidence. And, and sometimes in those cases, they're acting like good journalists, in my view. They heard something uh, said by somebody that didn't correspond with some ground truth or some other facts or something that somebody else said. And so uh, in many ways, I think that an evidence-based approach to truth um, if we want to go with small t truth, um, is exactly the right approach from what we've at least learned from the psychology of deception. And and journalists, uh, you know, since you and I have started talking and I've been reading more about the Hutchins Report, which I'll get you to tell us about, which I didn't really know about, um, is exactly what we naturally do when we encounter situations where we're like, well, I don't know if I can trust this person right now because what they're saying is not what I expected or it doesn't accord with what I know. So I think this idea of evidence, which seems really obvious, is, makes sense. The problem we have is we were used to dealing with evidence for the last, you know, couple hundred years at least on um, a media environment where there were a couple hundred books produced a year or a month. And now in a day, there's more, you know, written than, you know, most of uh, human prehistory. So how do we deal with this other kind of evidence? Um, how do we make sense of this much more massive amount? Algorithms are involved. They're making decisions for us. So that's why I really think the, the trust project's valuable because it's trying to help say in these domains, here's some signals that this is good evidence. Well, thanks. And yeah, that, that's the idea is, is kind of pointing to people to some clear criteria that they can use to understand, is this really journalism or not? And some of the examples are... Um, we ask news organizations to list their best practices. So is, is there an, do they have an ethics policy? Does it include conflict of interest? So do they say, what do they do if they have a conflict of interest? How do they avoid it? Who owns the organization? Uh, what's their mission and coverage policy um, or, or coverage emphasis? And um, 
things like commitment to diverse voices. And all these things didn't come out of, you know, the university or my head or a group of, I mean, even a group of journalists' heads. Uh, when I first started this, I, I had... Uh, you know, you know, I was a Knight Fellow at Stanford, and I, as an alum, I got to go back every now and then. And I learned about the D School and design thinking. And I thought, wow, this is really important because journalists, we have been actually trying to deal with this trust issue for a long time. This isn't a new thing. So, you know, at least more than 20 years, I think in the was the late 70s was when trust started to really decline. So that makes it more like 50 years. Um, so the way this design thinking works is you go to the public and you, or your, people you're designing for and talk to them. So that's what we did. And we talked to people about what is it you trust in the news? Um, actually, why do you value it? When do, when do you trust it and when don't you? And so out of that came these trust indicators. So things like um, wanting to know these basic practices, wanting to know um, do, does this journalist actually seek out people like me, people unlike me, people who are not just at high levels of business and government. That's why we have this um, asking, we're asking journalists or news sites to state what is your commitment or what is your, um, actually it is a commitment, and describe your commitment, whether you have it or not, to including diverse voices. And they want to know more about who is the journalist, so there's information about that and so on. Yeah, I have to say, and this is embarrassing, but as a non-journalist, I, I just assumed journalists did stuff objectively or something and and had no idea that there's like this whole set of codes and 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 uh practices that are considered sort of gold standard for journalists and i, I think many people don't really know how much training goes in f to good journalism and so i think surfacing some of those ideas like this organization actually follows these objective journalistic practices and this one not so much yeah um, hopefully that will work. And it's true that like early on as a journalist, we were always asked to give talks about what we do. And I was really surprised. I was giving a talk at the Ethics Center at Stanford, in fact, about my coverage of biotech. And um, I introduced the, the Society for Professional Journalists Ethics Policy to them. And they're like, wow, wow. we didn't know you had ethics. <laughs> you know, yeah. You had policies around ethics. So my question to you, though, I mean, we've been going under the assumption and we have um, been working in this process of design thinking. There's this iterative approach where you keep showing people what you're doing and you get their feedback. And essentially, we think we're doing what people want. But you're describing people who are kind of in this flow of information and they're just overwhelmed and being drawn, you know, along by it. So... Um, how can we even be sure they'd look at it? Do we need them to look at it? It doesn't even matter as long as it's there. Yeah, this is, this is a huge challenge because much of what we do, uh, we're not going to step back and say, okay, I'm going to evaluate the trustworthiness of this. You know, like, um, you know, the one really important effect from deception and trust research is that we're all truth biased. And it's, I don't love the term because it suggests that believing other people is a bias. Actually, it's totally the rational thing to do. Most of the time we're being told the truth or we're encountering non-deceptive information. So most of the time when we've looked at diary studies, you know, messaging studies, big computational studies, 90 to 95% of the time you're encountering um, real non-deceptive information or messages. 
So we have this truth bias, and the truth bias works really well because most of the time we're getting this truthful information. Uh, but it also um, prevents us most often from doing a deep dive on whether we believe something or not. So as I'm looking through my news feed or I'm looking at uh, – I, I read the New York Times as I read through that. I'm never like, oh, should I trust this as a default? The default is we trust it. And we don't move out of that sort of trust default space until something triggers us to question it. So something suspicious or something that doesn't sit right, um, that moves us out of that sort of like default state of trusting. And I think that's a challenge that the Trust Project and, and, and you know, all of these sort of initiatives uh, have is that most of the time people aren't doing sort of a deep dive on um, is this valid, is this truth, uh, they're sort of like moving through the world and if it's fitting with their worldview and they're accomplishing their goals, whether they're social or entertainment or um, work related, they're fine. It's only when something doesn't – something's suspicious that they do a deeper dive. And that for me is where I hope the trust project actually matters. Two ways. One, if the platforms take your metadata seriously – then we're much more likely to encounter trustworthy information. That's really important. And then the second is that when you come across something that either makes you suspicious or question, which is rare, uh, or you're looking at something that you think is really important to you that matters, right? Maybe it's voting. Maybe it's whether to get a vaccination. Maybe it's, you know, whatever is important to you. You will actually pay more attention to that. But most things we don't. We're just trying to get through the day. But, you know, there was something I read of yours that gave me heart in relation to that because it, it sounds like people actually do um, – maybe it's just when they feel a little questioned, but they actually do research to try to assess whether something's truthful or not. Yeah, there's this research notion. Research might not be the right word. but yeah, uh, it's not bad actually. Yeah. Uh, it's epistemic vigilance, which okay. is this great term. Didn't uh, quite I have just, that term. Yeah, I know. I just like to say that. It makes me sound very smart. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's this uh, notion that is actually uh, dissimilar to research and that it's non-conscious. So in the same way that like when I move through this room and if, if other people were walking, my body would sort of non-consciously sort of guide me through it without hitting anybody. But I don't sit there consciously being like, okay, I have to avoid Sally. I need to avoid Hannah. Okay, I'm, I got a clear line here. My body's doing all this work for me. It's, that's the vigilance part. Uh, epistemic vigilance is is this idea that we're sort of constantly in the background assessing the likelihood that this is real and that I'm what I'm seeing and hearing is um, is reasonable to believe, and that's that idea that sometimes things make us suspicious that something doesn't sit right, and that's this notion of epistemic vigilance where. Uh, in the face-to-face -face world, we've evolved for at least you know 400,000 years, it looks like, speaking like we are right now. And um, we've evolved this sort of uh, ability to make sense of the world and whether we should believe it or not. Uh, when we take drugs and things like that, it sort of like undermines it. And that's why people often have like a lot of fun with uh, drugs because they alter our ability to sort of monitor what's real and what's not. In the last 20 to 30 years, um, we've dramatically changed that environment and that sort of natural, uh, very non-conscious heuristic kind of process of assessing the validity of information in our environment 
um, that's new and, and our sort of like evolution, if you will, the cognitive and social and emotional um, is bumping up against a radically new uh, environment. Mm. Yeah, well, so that's, that gives me heart too because when I th- cause what we're doing with the trust indicators is providing the guidance you know, tools, giving them people as they're um, vigilantly trying to make their way through all this information, then we're providing maybe the oars on the little boat. Is my metaphor is really falling apart. No, that's pretty good metaphors. Though. I like that. The metaphors are good. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Like, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm optimistic is we um, do some work with a, a local not for profit called my digital tattoo they're here in the bay area and we also talk to common sense media and uh, these folks go out especially the my digital tattoo folks and they um, go and do workshops with um, kids in elementary school grade through to uh, grade grade three to grade uh, eight and um, what i love about what they do is their job is to go in there and raise awareness about issues to do with technology use and the internet privacy safety uh, physical and mental health but they're really good at listening, and I got to do uh, some ride-alongs with them. And young kids, I mean, I was in a grade uh, four session where they were talking about how can they tell whether um, a player in their game, like Fortnite or something, was an adult or not. And they had these, like, crazy cues that I never would have thought of, like, is there a voice changer? Can they hear kids, young kids in the background? They had a real sense of, um, of that sort of idea of epistemic vigilance, but in this new world. And so I really got a sense that, the, that, that these kids are much more savvy and aware of the trade-offs of being in these environments and how to make sense out of what's real and valid and what's not. Um, so it, it was heartwarming. I mean, they didn't only say like, oh, yeah, everything's awesome. They talked a lot more about um, like negativity, you know, so they're, some of them call the kids use this term, the Trump effect, that uh, people are just meaner. There's more toxicity online. Um, they talk about, you know, sleep issues, um, but they're doing it in this way where they're very, like, self-aware about it, and, which, again, gives me hope because if people are sort of self-aware, they can start to train themselves and be resilient and, and, and know when they need to either back away or maybe read a little bit more about this topic. So, I, you know, this sounds a little bit naive, but I, I think the kids are more than all right. They're going to help us uh, navigate this new world. That that's really interesting, and and the thing is though, how do you, what do we do with a study like the one at Stanford too, right. where we the researchers I don't know if you're part of that study, but discovered that young people really couldn't tell the difference between, um, yeah, real information information that was designed to sell them something. I think that's what that's it was. That's right. Or, Weinberg's uh, uh, study. It's uh, very good. Came out in 2015 or 2016. And uh, it was a real eye-opener because it was showing that uh, young people, uh, high school, college, had difficulty distinguishing something that was fake versus real on, um, in social media. And, you know, that raised a lot of alarm bells for us. And certainly, I think there's lots that can be done for literacy. Um, but I also think with that study, it was showing sort of a mocked-up version of Twitter and the kids were shown things, kind of like what my lab would do is we would, we would show things where we're trying to carefully control the stimuli so it, you know, they're really similar except one's fake and one's true, but everything else is the same. I think what, what I, where I'm coming, and I don't have a lot of scientific evidence for this yet, we've started a few studies, is that um, by 
by by sort of like mocking up the social media environment and getting them to sort of answer questions that they weren't really that interested in. Like it, it wasn't their deal. It was sort of like, oh, do you think this flower really comes from this mountain area or whatever? Uh, that we're starting to believe that if you show actual environments that the, that these kids are in or we're in with the actual information and the kinds of cues that are there and things that matter to you uh, and matter, especially to these younger kids, they'll do really well. So, for example, one of my um, uh, students, uh, Angela Lee, has been looking at how uh, you can show people a website to download a, a free video. So I'm sure none of you have ever downloaded a free video or song or anything. But uh, if you do, you'll often encounter a page where there's multiple places to click. And one of them will get you the, the, the video and the rest will get you like viruses and ads and stuff like that. So in Angela, and we're just starting this, but initially Angela was finding that like young people were like, boom, they'd click the link that mattered because it mattered to them and they had experience with that environment. And people like myself were completely performing at chance. Like it was just, I have no idea which of these links to go with. So I think there's, we have to take the media environment that, that they are in, that we are in seriously and uh, nothing against that study. It was really important and, and really told us, like, hey, it's not, like, magical. It's not like young people are sort of magically smarter at navigating the space, but rather the environment itself matters. Right. And think about the environment. So on one, we have a video and you click it. The other news is information that you're trying to assess to think about how how is this going to affect my life. And to, for a young person, they may have a different set of values attached to that um, because it, and I think older people do have a better sense of what to trust and not although we are we are looking at very different kinds of people even within those populations so it's, re- it's really unfair to compare old versus young or women versus men or whatever it is yeah. um, and when we d- when we did our user studies and then went out and talked to people about what is it they value in news, we really ended up with four different types of users. So I'd be interested in your reaction to them. So we, um, we got the, the, avid engage, the avid news user. And so they're out there checking and cross-checking the news, pulling it in. Um, they're curating it for everyone else. And often they were younger, but I don't want to. I can't make generalizations because we were we were doing this design thinking approach, with, so it's not a representative population at all. Um, and then there's the avid and engage, or I'm sorry, there's the the engaged news user. So that's somebody who might subscribe to a publication. They're um, probably overwhelmed with the amount of information accept, uh, accessible to them. They're also a little bit dissatisfied because they may not feel that they are, it's even their community is thoroughly covered, what, whether you're talking about their local community or the demographic or whatever it is. Then there's the opportunistic user. So that's somebody who is just so busy. They're in this not just the flow of information but the flow of life. So they're just looking at news when – uh, it washes over them. So maybe they're in the break room and it's on the television or a, a notification comes up on their phone. And then there's the angry and disengaged. So they all have a slightly different relationship to the news the, um, and different levels of certainty around what to trust or what not to trust and, and really about their own ability to make those decisions. What we did find, too, was every single one of those groups, even the ones that I call the angry and disengaged, recognize the importance of news 
and the value to their lives. And, and there we cut across generation. See, I love this idea. Like we talk about us and people and society and technology, and it's you know, in many ways, it's too vague. It's like saying, you know, is, is social media good or bad for us? Like it, that's just that you know, horse left the barn a while ago, and it's it's both and all, and it's part of everything. But what I like about that is also starting to realize that we're not all one homogenous group of people either. So. I was telling you a little bit about the uh, Andrew Guess and uh, uh, Josh Tucker study that came out about three weeks ago. Um, they were looking at all the fake news shared, I believe, just on Facebook. And uh, they found a couple of like heartening things in terms of like interventions like the Trust Project need to do. Uh, the first was only 8% of the population that they studied ever shared any fake news. So it wasn't like everybody's just like, well, random, you know, like share, share, share. So there's just a small number of people that are doing almost all of the sharing of fake news. My guess is they might be some of the angry uh, folks that are, you know, it's very uh, motivated for them. The other really important finding here, tying it back a little bit to before, is uh, older people were much more likely to share fake news than younger people. Yeah, like it was substantially. I can't remember the rate, but it was three or four times more likely. So, you know, the worrisome part is that uh, we, we have a demographic that is struggling with this new media environment. But the upside is, well, maybe we don't have to target everything and everybody, but focus on these people that are struggling with figuring out, like, do I share this or not share this? Um, and, and, and I'll talk about my dad, who's a great guy in Canada uh, on the conservative side. And, um, you know, uh, he was sharing some stuff that, you know, his construction buddies would share. And they were, you know, borderline, like, you know, not cool. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say racist, but they were like, ah, come on, dad, really? And so um, I talked to him about it. And I just said, hey, dad, like, I don't think this is on me. Like, you know, your, your, your nephews and nieces are seeing this. And he was like, what? And for my dad, he to him, he was, like, just sharing this stuff with his buddies. And he had no conceptualization that, like, family members, other friends were seeing this. So, you know, we've been sort of looking at these things called folk theories, which is how people uh, imagine a system works. And we all have folk theories of everything. Um, a good example is gravity. Like, I think I know how gravity works pretty well, but when my daughter asks me how gravity works. Uh, after about the third why, I'm like, oh, I have no idea how gravity works. Uh, but uh, I know well enough for me and my daughter not to have fallen off a cliff. So our folk theories are really good at like getting us through uh, the day and accomplishing what we want to accomplish. But when new systems come online and we take these folk theories, they can sometimes be really radically off. I think my dad's folk theory was he was he was sharing this stuff with his with his buddies and uh and that's where we i think we start to see the problem of where where and how the fake news was shared so what what more have you learned about fake news is is it something that we are just somehow drawn to or is it you know are old people just older people just not really very smart right what's going on here (laughs) I, i don't think it's not smart it's um so they're not used to the environment. They, they, they have grown up and, and in a sort of like TV media environment where things were segmented. You know I'm not serious about I know, people. I know. Old people are delightful and yeah. super smart. <laughs> I <can't. laughs> yeah, I count myself amongst them. Um, 
but um, there's there's some features of of fake news that are really uh, malicious, and they I think in some ways um, older folks can be a little bit more vulnerable vulnerable to them. So since 2016, tons of research has been done on fake news, uh, some of which are is really worrying. Um, like for example, uh, fake news tends to travel faster and farther in social networks. The main reason there is it's often uh, emotionally much more intense. Um, they're oriented around uh, partisan divides. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, Russian uh, disinformation campaigns weren't about spreading, f- you know, straight up fake news very much. It was more about like um, uh, intensifying the polarized battles that America has around uh, race, uh, other identity issues. So. Um, fake news often was really emotionally intense. And I think um, in in this case of the study of the older people sharing more, that, that may have uh, grabbed them more easily than other people who were maybe more um, attuned to the emotional uh, dynamics of the internet. So again, I think we've learned a lot about how fake news works. In, in many ways, it's less worrisome than I think we thought. Like it's a much smaller percentage um, that's not shared by as many people as we were worried about. But um, there are new new threats on the horizon. So we talked a little bit about um, the Russian disinformation model is being taken up by domestic actors. Um, if you're a communication consultant, you have to be thinking about these techniques. Um, do we regulate them? Do we make them illegal? Do they become unethical? But it's not like the conservatives or the liberals have a hold on these. We saw in the Alabama race, Democratic consultants were using these Russian disinformation techniques. Other countries are going to start using these techniques. Um, organizations will start using them. So I'm, I am worried about not you and me falling prey necessarily or sharing fake news, but uh, hostile actors using the information environment, in particular advertising, to wage sort of concerted propaganda campaigns. And who do you see as the most vulnerable to that kind, those kinds of campaigns? I think that, you know, the research that we're seeing is it does suggest that older people are more vulnerable, uh, people with uh, less education are going to be more vulnerable, and people that actually have really strong um, uh, motivations. So a really interesting counterexample here is uh, the anti-vax movement, and we see this measles outbreak. Um, I was just listening to the radio earlier today, and there was an anthropologist on there talking about how actually smart and engaged these people were. They really cared about their kids' health, perhaps to a point where it led them to make some difficult and problematic decisions. But it wasn't like they were like dumb and didn't care. So I think... We need to better understand how conspiracy theories work, how people form beliefs in instead of a vacuum of information, but an overwhelming amount. And um, I think it comes back to some of the goals of the Trust Project, which is, like, can we provide some signals that will help people make decisions based on the evidence? To really help people navigate. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, as journalists, we really, I think, try very hard to do that. Seeking the truth, we also make big mistakes and sometimes end up. Um, amplifying the conspiracy theories, right. which is a, one of my concerns. And I just, I 
um, the Washington Post this morning had a story about a conspiracy theory about Chuck E. Cheese pizza. I don't know if anyone heard about <laughs> that, but the, 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 if you look at a pizza that's you served by this Chuck E. Cheese, like the edges aren't even, so maybe they're actually taking pieces of pizza off old people's plates and sticking it together. <laughs> Why was that a story in the Washington Post? I cannot tell you. I know. So... Um, I mean, this is the risk. Of, I mean, as journalists, I think there's this effort. Kind of comes back to why this trust project even began. Is we we're trying to compete in this environment, and so end up sometimes going to the the worst and end up amplifying the worst. So, um, I mean, you may have some advice for journalists. Well, uh, one of our grad students in the at Stanford um, has written a, a piece called "Media Manipulation." Uh, her name's Becca Lewis. And she examined how, in this case, the um, alt-right or far-right um, manipulated the mainstream media to get sort of memes and ideas or stories out of uh, this sort of like ecosystem of Reddit, for example, and into the mainstream. And so I think journalists have a lot uh, more responsibility, not that they shirked it, but rather they're being attacked in ways that they, I don't think, had anticipated before. You would, again, like with the truth bias, somebody comes to you with a story, you just assume that it's a legit – well, no, journalist doesn't check assume. check it out, yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, journalists will have to develop some resilience to these kind of manipulation attacks. Yeah, and I, and I, I know that journalists really are making an effort to, to do that um, and, and, try, and learning along the way. And, then, and there are difficult decisions. So, for instance, with hate speech – when do you report that that someone is using this kind of hate speech? When do you not report it because you, all you're doing is pushing it further out into the world? So what you're kind of balancing the public's right to know and and um, letting people know that there's certain phenomenon or trend is happening and then just be, being the megaphone for it. And I don't think we've solved that. It's just a real challenge. No, it's true. But I, I have a little bit of good news for you that yeah. I haven't told you yet. Oh, great. Yeah. So there's uh, something called the Edelman Trust Report, and uh, their latest one just came out um, in January, and they had one uh, the previous year uh, as well, and they sort show similar trends, but the 2018 one was really heartening. Um, so although people have lower levels of trust in journalists, that's been declining over time, uh, in 2018 there was a 12-point gain Excellent. And I think what it means is that people are like, oh, yeah, journalists, right, they probably do do some good stuff. Um, where I think, like, they're starting to realize that there's a gatekeeper function and that just getting whatever comes in off your, your social feed isn't going to be a good solution. So, I, yeah, I'm heartened. I'm optimistic that there's uh, a rebound for journalists and how we, we end up trusting uh, the media again. And was it was it journalists or journalism or news? You journalists. Know, the, journalists. So that's interesting, too. And kind of gets to what we were talking about regarding trust of institutions. So we know that trust in institutions is declining, that's unless right. there's an uptick nope, that still going I haven't down. heard about yet. Well, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, but for yeah. government and media, it's, uh, it's still pretty it's declining, yeah. Yeah. And the, so this gets to – I've been thinking about that. Like how does journalism fit in? And, and there's this decline in um, trust in media in general. And I think part of that has to do with this distinction between I trust the journalist but not necessarily 
the institution. And what we've done, this is one of our bigger mistakes as journalists, as we've kind of allowed ourselves to separate ourselves from the population. So we're seen as an institution as opposed to the public's voice in challenging institutions and really holding institutions right. accountable. Right. So now we're part of the, the problem in some people's minds. Yeah. And there's, of course, active efforts to promote that idea. So that's, that's what we're up against. And, and one of the things that I find so exciting about the Trust Project is that news organizations don't like working together. I mean, we're very competitive. We're competitive people. We're competitive as organizations. But here are we have news organizations around the world who are, have come together to try to and stepped up to try to solve this problem. And I'll be on the phone like with a one, there's one example that I'll never forget is this guy, two newspapers from Italy, they are you know, arch competitors, and one of them is helping the other one figure out, okay, here's how you put these trust indicators on your page. And I thought, that's great. So you're a little optimistic on that front in terms of you know news organizations starting to coordinate or oh, at yeah. least trust each other? Oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of – I mean, around this – I mean, you want a news – you want news that competes because that's partly how you refine the search for truth. So you've got you know, your various the Washington Post going for a story, New York Times going for a story, Wall Street Journal, the Globe and Mail, and everybody's trying to sort out and push one another to get to the, the answer. So that's really good. So you want to keep that competitiveness, in, but you also want to start, I mean, what I want to do is start bringing people together and I think successfully have been able to do that to respond to this crisis that we find ourselves in and really be respond to our role in serving the public and delivering accurate information. Yeah, and, and so that brings us to, I think we should start doing our, our, our wrap-up, getting close anyways. Um, one of the things for me about, uh, you know, we were going to talk about what do we see for the future and um, sometimes when you're looking to the future, it's good to look at the past. And we talked a little bit about this. Um, this issue of sort of fake news or understanding has, has been with us for a while. Um, journalists have had to deal with it explicitly. There's um, historical evidence of some of this from uh, right after the printing press. So about 30 years after the printing press, there's a pretty horrible uh, case where um, – uh, a Catholic community blames some Jewish people in the community f uh, for the disappearance of a baby. And before the end of this episode, there's a number of um, uh, people have been killed because of this. And it takes the Catholic Church, you know, they have to come and step in for that. And so it often makes me think about, you know, this is a disrupt disruption. Like we're changing the way we as humans uh, engage with each other and understand the news and what's happening in the world. And and maybe the printing press is a good sort of um, pointer. Um, it was it was disruptive for about 100 years. It, it changed the way um, humans um, interacted not only with the world but with God, you know. So before the printing press, the church was the dominant institution, and that was it. There were no nation states. And by the time of the end of the... Um, Printing presses sort of effect on society. The church is, you know, largely, you know, greatly diminished, and there's the rise of nation states, right? So, you know, these are pretty big changes, and it's it's bigger than fake news, right? So, I think we're going to continue to see change. Um, but what I I am optimistic about are projects like the Trust Project, where we're developing new ways of sort of dealing with the change. So, I don't know what do you see for the for the future? Well, I think. 
one, I think it's so important, like the kind of work that you're doing to help us understand what's really going on and what is our relationship to this new medium and how can we interact with it more effectively. So every at every level from what I'm working on, we're kind of at the at the news delivery level to how people can float along that stream and, and make better decisions because we're trying to do that, but I think your work is extremely important and useful in that arena as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, and so the future is, um, I, think we, I think we will make our way. I think, I mean, one of the things that we learned from our work with, um, all, with this research that we were doing and interviewing folks was just that, like I said, how people really do want to understand the news. They want to get accurate news. They're willing to go a little bit further to try to uh, – because they understand that they're in this new environment. You can't just pick up a newspaper and maybe judge by the quality of the newsprint – whether this is something I can trust or not, or even where it's placed in the grocery store, because you know, like you know that the tablets are right, right next to the checkout counter. Turns out not all that is true. Some... <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So yeah, and then we didn't talk about the platforms too much, but I feel like they also. I mean, there's many ways in which we wish they would do better and do more, but they're also stepping up to the challenge and, and doing and attempting to step up to the challenge. For instance, working with us. Um, and so I kind of have a, a often a window into the way they've been thinking about it, and it's it's a huge it's a huge responsibility that they hold and a huge challenge. One of my um, or one of the ways I think about it is I I want them to step up to it, but I don't want us to just hand over the responsibility to them because um, maybe we feel that. Um, we want or we have a lot of confidence in these corporations right now or we're willing to – I mean, we seem to have confidence because we want them to, to change things for the better. But at the same time, we have to take on the role ourselves as individuals to hold them accountable, as individuals to hold ourselves accountable, to hold newsrooms accountable, to because we all help shape this flow of information. Yeah. It does feel like there's a bit of a change in how people perceive the platforms and corporations. And, you know, I think that'll definitely hasten more change because I think uh, the views turned pretty negative. I mean, I remember when I was studying social media in 2010, 2014, 2015 even, people were really positive about the possibilities. And that's radically changed. Well, yeah. And in my view, like totally overly optimistic and not skeptical enough. So, and, and the point here is, like with the Trust Project, and I think as we think about news in general, is not to, we don't, want, we don't really want everyone to trust the news. We want people to trust journalists and the news to be, um, to be responsible to the public, to serve the public interest. But it doesn't mean that I hope everybody will pick up a piece of news and trust it. We want people to be skeptical, too. So that's essentially, um, I think, the whole, the goal. Yeah. We can get there. Yeah, well, I, I'm optimistic that we're going to be doing that. I, I think the uh, audience here tonight, people listening, um, are part of a really huge movement. There's hundreds of millions of dollars being put into this problem by uh, philanthropy. The, all the corporations are working on it. At Stanford, there's like 12 different groups focused on this this issue. Um, I feel like, you know, we're, we're putting a good effort into it. I'm afraid I think we have to stop 
But thank you thank all, you all so for much for listening. This has been yeah. really great. Thanks. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>